Hi there. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors at Heights Baptist Church in Alvin. We are so glad that you found our content online. We would love it if you would connect with us at heightschurch.org connect. And we'd love to see you in person. We worship every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Thanks for joining us. All right, good morning, church. We'll be in the book of Genesis this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you'll open with me to Genesis 37. What a pleasure it is to be with you. I do get to preach all across the state, and uh, I want you to have the opportunity to express your appreciation for that incredible praise service that we just had. They were really good, amen? Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us into the presence of the Lord. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It reminded me of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. You do realize that you're born again, not of your own choice, that God has called you. The opening verses of 1 Peter says that He knew you chosen before the foundation of the world through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey Christ, be sprinkled with His blood. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I need an amen to that. Caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Do you know what you've got in store for you in the future and has reserved for you an inheritance in heaven, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Amen. Has nothing to do with the sermon I was preaching. That's just a verse that came to mind when they sang that wonderful old hymn of the faith. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. It is a book that tells a breadth of stories. The Bible is full of them. And let me tell you something. I I don't know that anything captured my attention as a small boy going to an old country church about an hour and a half in the country that away in Winnie, Texas. Anybody know where Winnie, Texas is? That's where I was born and raised. My parents were educators. My parents were musicians. Uh, I was born in a musical family. Share a little bit of those stories as we spend time together over the lunch hour. Uh, but I remember the songs of the, of the faith that, that we would sing. And I remember the felt board where they told the Joseph story. You remember that? Nothing. When the book of Genesis opens, it's covering a tremendous span of time. But when you get to chapter 37, it, it slows down. And, and between chapter 37 and the end of the book, all the way to chapter 50, it's going to tell you the story of a man named Joseph. Now I'm going to give you permission just to listen because... You know, there is danger in the familiar because I bet everybody in this room, if you've been to church any length of time, have heard the story of Joseph. And so for the better part of 20 plus minutes, let's just rehearse it together. And then I'm going to tell you two characteristics of your God that you serve and love and who loves you. Two of God's inherent dispositions toward you as his children and five very commonsensical points that come straight from the text. But you're going to need your Bibles open in your lap the whole time. Amen? This is the Word of God. It is living. It is active. 
It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It divides joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the very thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This is God's breath. It's God breathed, God ordained. It is inerrant. It is accurate. It is, has a veracity that means as much today to your life than any book you've ever picked up. Do you realize the treasure that you have in this book? Somebody ought to say amen to that. Now, you people, y'all got to wake up. Amen. Now, I'm from the country, but it's, yeah, it's almost noon. You people should, y'all can get up early out here, don't you, in Alvin, Texas? The story of Joseph really has five distinct scenes. And the first scene opens in chapter 37. I might call it a family feud. For those of you that are familiar with the backstory, there's a man named Abram. God has chosen him, made his promises to him. And then the Genesis begins to tell the story of something we call commonly the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the great deceiver who's renamed Israel. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 37, notice in the book in your lap in verse 1, it says, Now here are the generations of Israel, Jacob. And immediately it goes to what is one of his younger sons, a boy named Joseph, and it mentions his age as his story starts. He is 17 years old. Now here's his challenge. He lives in one of the most dysfunctional, jacked up families you will read about if you read the totality of your scripture. I mean, the Bible is not a a Bible, a story of fairy tales. It's real life, real people, just like you and me. And, and Joseph's family is incredibly dysfunctional. Some of that has to do with his mom and his dad and his dad's other wife. You see, because you remember the story, right? Where Isaac comes and he falls in love with Rachel, but he gets deceived and he wakes up on the morning after his wedding, after he worked seven hard years for us. And lo, it was not Rachel, but Leah, the older daughter, the one who had weak eyes. She was cross-eyed. I would have given a whole lot of money to see that wake-up call, wouldn't you? But he loved Rachel so much, he worked another seven years, and it seemed like just a few passing days, he takes his favored wife, and, and then these two girls have a competition for who can have the most babies. You see, Rachel's womb is closed. Leah, boy, she's, she's cranking them out. And, 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 and then when Leah doesn't feel like she's cranking them out fast enough, she starts giving him her handmaidens, and Rachel's giving uh, I, I, her husband, her handmaidens. Let me tell you something. It is a sexual free-for-all in this house. The Kardashians, keeping up with the Kardashians. Heck, keep up with, you know, keep up with this family. But one of the reasons I mentioned a little bit of that backstory is so that you can understand the context of chapter 27 in this family feud. You see, because if you read even the first, first five verses of chapter 37, you find that these older brothers, which are in fact Joseph's half-brothers, they literally can't stand him. They hate him. They envy him. They're jealous of him. If you read the scripture in your lap tonight, you ought to read this story before you go to bed. I tell you what, it's kind of one of those cliffhangers. You just can't put it down. Because it's filled with so much intrigue, so, so much human of humanity that we can, can all relate to. The Bible says they couldn't even speak friendly to him. And then God started doing something in Joseph's life. He started giving him dreams. 
And he begins to share these dreams with his brothers. And the dreams have as their inference, as, their, uh, the, as the thing that, that kind of is projected in the dreams, the, the, the dreams, the fact that his brothers will bow down to him. He said, listen, we were in the fields. We were binding up our sheaves. My sheep stood up. Your sheaves bowed down to my sheep. His brother said, listen, what are you, what are you talking about? You mean you think they're actually going to rule over us? He has another dream. I mean, that's, you know, a couple few days later, he says, hey, listen, I've had another dream. They said, oh, goody, goody, tell us again. <laughs> oh, this time the sun and the moon and the stars, they, they bowed down. Even his father said, look, son, he rebuked him, the scripture says, but he held all of these things in his heart. They hated him. He brought a bad report about his brothers. He's a tattletale. It's a dysfunctional family. There, there is no friendly table talk at the dinner table in the house of Joseph. It is an incredibly, incredibly dysfunctional family. There's a family feud. And, and so what happens is these brothers can't stand him so much that as they go, they leave him at the house with his father because he was the father's favored son. This is where the coat of many colors comes in. And so, you know, he's a favored son of the father. He's, he, he's given preference over all the brothers. They hate him, but they go out and do their thing in the field. Joseph was a shepherd, but he's at home. And his father says, go check on the welfare of your brothers. Go, go see if the flock is okay. You see, they went to a place called Shechem, which if you read a few chapters back is another place that has a whole lot of rape and incest and, 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 and carnage and death. You see, there was a girl named Dinah, the daughter of these other brothers that got raped and they, they tricked an entire town into getting circumcised. And while they were immobilized, they went and they massacred the whole town. This is a really, really bad story. And so they're in a place called Shechem where they've already got some level of history and the father, out of concern for the other son, says, go, go check on your brothers. He journeys some 63 miles, finally finds him in a place called Dothan. But as he's approaching them, they look out and they can see him coming because he's got this regal coat on. Everybody, I mean, they're, 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 this coat must have been something to look at because it was so distinct. I remember, I'll tell you a few stories about my family. If you come to lunch with us, we were raised in a football family. My brother and I were both football players, highly recruited. Uh, my brother played at University of Texas. His son played at Rice and then in the NFL for eight years. But I remember my brother in his senior year, he was one of the highest recruited linebackers in the country. We had every college coach in the country in our living room. And one uh, weekend, uh, he was scheduled to go on a recruiting trip to SMU. And our knock on our back door came and, and Eric Dickerson was in that same class. And Eric Dickerson was at my back. I opened the back door, and it's the middle of the night. They were supposed to catch a private charter plane and fly to Dallas where Ron Meyer was trying to recruit Eric Dickerson and my brother. Eric Dickerson had on a full-length mink coat and sunglasses. <laughs> now, I'm from Winnie, Texas. I'm a redneck kid from the sticks. I thought, what in the world? I can still see him. I close my eyes, I can still see Eric Dickerson standing at my back door with a full-length trench coat on, looked like mink. I'm sure it was fake. Wearing sunglasses. Before that song came out, I wear my sunglasses at night. Eric Dickerson was doing it in Winnie, Texas. It was quite a sight. But they see him. They can recognize him. And they hated him so much they plotted to kill him. They say, oh, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. Now, that's not just friendly dislike, friends. That's, that's pure hatred. 
And so as he comes, they plot to throw him in a pit, take his coat of many colors. They stripped it off of him. Their plan was to act like a wild beast ate him, and they throw him into a pit. Reuben, the oldest, intercedes. Now, this is a key point. You see, because in interceding for his brother, his intent was to rescue him and restore him back to the father. But somehow he wanders off, and here comes a couple of tribes of Ishmaelites and Midianites, and they say, well, we shouldn't kill him. I mean, his blood would be on our hands. Let's sell him. Let's make some money. So they pull him out of the pit while Reuben is away, and they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. Can I tell you something? That's a family feud. That's a dysfunctional family. Now, I've been a pastor for a number of years. I'm not a pastor anymore. I, I miss being a pastor. I miss the responsibility of shepherding God's people, watching out for their welfare. But in the 13, 14 years I did it, I can tell you I've seen some families in such tremendous disarray, dysfunction, hurt, hang-ups, that, that, that there is answers for addressing the dysfunction of a family. Before this story ends, these brothers are going to be reconciled. But it's, it's noteworthy to pause at this point and say, but it wasn't here. For heaven's sake, they've just sold him into slavery. And so there's this family feud. And so as the story progresses forward, again, we're just rehearsing the elements of the story so I can give you two characteristics of the God that loves you and you love and five exhortations, five pieces of, 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 of things that I hope will, will make sense to you. The next chapter of Joseph's life is what I call false accusation. You see, he goes to Egypt. He is sold as a slave on the slave block and purchased by a guy named Potiphar, who in chapter 38 or 39 is described as the head of the security for the king of the land, the Pharaoh. Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, chapter 39, verse 1, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And so he goes from a pit into a, pit, a household, but he is a household slave. Has done nothing wrong, and yet his circumstances would be incredibly confusing to him. Favored by his father, serving his father, betrayed by his brothers. He came into his own, but his own did not receive him. And instead they betrayed him and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Now, I hope so far my language is starting to clue you in on where this story is going. You see, because Joseph is the foreshadow of Jesus in the New Testament. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Joseph's story in the Old. Keep that in mind as we go through the story. Sold for 20 pieces of silver. But all throughout every stage of his life, every chapter, you're going to read verses where it says, but God was with him. He made him a successful man, and everything that he touched prospered. You see that in verses 2, in chapter 39, in verse 4. And so every stop of the road for Joseph, from this point on, you're going to be reading that God 
was with him in his circumstances. Friend, can I ask you a question? I don't know what you're going through this morning, but sometimes things don't go the way you want them to go. Amen? Sometimes, but through no fault of your own, you may be doing the right thing, but the wrong things may be happening to you. Amen? Sometimes you may be passed over for a promotion. Sometimes things may be such that somebody's done incredible evil towards you. Can I tell you something? Don't ever forget that God is with his children. He never forsakes us. He will never leave us. He will be with us on every step of every journey. This is a micro story in a macro plan that God has. You see, God has a plan for this world. And this plan for his world, because he has a plan for this world, there is a plan for a specific person, a nation, a man named Abram who became Abraham, who God makes incredible promises to that are going to be fulfilled as this book tells its story of redemption. Because God has a plan for the world. He has a plan for a nation named Israel through which he will display his glory, through which he will reveal himself, through which he will give the holy scriptures that are in your lap, the seed of which, as it goes throughout this book, gives birth to the Messiah, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's got this big story. And here's the exciting news. If you're sitting here listening to this, you're intended to be a key part of it. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he preordained, predetermined for you to do. You do realize you have a, a role to play in the grand story of God, if you look at me and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, I've been saved by grace through no merit of my own, I did not warrant any of this goodness, this good news of the gospel, but God saves you in order to use you to progress his story forward for his glory. You see, Joseph's not got much glory right now. He's a slave. And now, the next bit of salacious detail comes in. You see, the scripture says that while God was blessing him and prospering him and causing all things, the touch of his hands to succeed, he blessed the Potiphar's household on account of Joseph. And so the Potiphar, this, this, this fellow who is basically the head of the Egyptian CIA, his job is to protect the Pharaoh, you, you've seen our president, right? He's got those guys running around all the time. They've got these little things in their ears. They're talking to their watch. I mean, the president of the United States has a specific detail assigned to protect him, to monitor everything that he does, his movements, his food, everything. One of these guys was a member of the church I pastored. He told me some stories. He said, if you ever tell these stories out loud, I'll have to come and kill you. But it's It's amazing. How intricate and how detailed and how specific that is. That's who this guy Potiphar is. And so he's so impressed with this boy Joseph that he puts everything in his household under his control. He said, listen, you run the whole thing. The, 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 you know, the only thing I want to pay attention to is what you eat. I'm not sure why that's in there, but that's what my wife does to me. Every time I try to eat a, a bowl of bluebells, she's wanting to monitor it. Amen. <laughs> I'm bitter, but that's okay. Potiphar puts everything under the control of Joseph. And now here comes the problem. The scripture says 
that he was handsome and well-built. And all the women said, <laughs> come on now, ladies. He was easy on the eyes, and he was buff. That's what the scripture says. Now listen, the scripture, can I just remind you of something? The scripture talks to real issues in this life. So let's don't act like that. I, you don't know that there's some people that are just prettier than others. <laughs> she looks at him and the scripture says that she desired him and she doesn't beat around the bush. The scripture says she grabs him and she says, come lie with me, which was an invitation to intimacy. And not only did she do it once, she did it day in, day out, repetitively. She was relentless. Joseph's response is, I cannot, how, how can I do this wicked thing? The master of this house has entrusted all to me. You are his wife. How can I betray his trust and do this great evil in the sight of my God? But she just won't let up day after day. We don't know how long he was in Potiphar's house. But as long as he was there, she was after him. So much so that because he was reluctant, one day she set the stage where no one else was in the house. And she comes and she grabs him and says the same thing, same invitation, same invitation to, to an illicit, ungodly, evil act. And the scripture says, boys, listen to this. Young men, listen to this. He did not try to reason with her. He ran. He fled. You get in the New Testament, there's only one sin where it says to flee from. It's flee immorality, flee sexual immorality. He left his coat and he hightailed it out of the house to the outside. But like his brother stripped off his coat of many colors, now she's got his coat. And this woman fulfills that saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. She begins to scream. She begins to levy false accusations. You see, there's a family feud, and now there's this false accusation. She said, this Hebrew that, that you brought in the house, he's trying to make sport of me. And he came, and he grabbed me, and he tried to force himself on me, but I screamed, and he ran away, and I've got his coat. Potiphar comes home. She tells the same story, and he's angry. But he also knows his wife. You see, because the punishment for adultery in the Egyptian law code is death. And instead of killing Joseph, he probably said, yeah, I bet I know who was on to who. And he puts him instead in prison. So we have a family feud. We have a false accusation. We have the same repetition of the story. God was with Joseph even in the prison. The, the jailer put all things under his charge. Everything that he touched flourished. And so suddenly there's two new occupants into the prison. It's the baker and the cupbearer of the Pharaoh. They had elicited the, the, the wrath of the Pharaoh. And so what would make a baker and a cupbearer get thrown into prison? Answer, somebody was trying to poison the Pharaoh, to kill him. Do you know who would have investigated that? Do you know who would investigate that? In all probability, Potiphar. And so here Joseph's got two new people in prison. 
This story starts when he's 17. We do not have an indication of how long he was in Potiphar's house. But as Potiphar delivers Joseph to the warden, he probably said, or could have said something like this. Yeah, my wife levied an accusation against him. It's probably her, not him. That's why I'm not killing him. I'm just going to put him in your charge. By the way, everything, this kid's got the Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. And so the jailer treats Joseph with the same with the same treatment as Potiphar. He puts him in charge of the whole prison. And suddenly here come these two new prisoners in, the baker and the cupbearer, and they have a dream. And the scripture says they woke up the next morning, their faces were troubled. Joseph noticed it. He said, why are your faces so downcast? Why are you so troubled? They said, we've had dreams and, and there's no one to interpret them. Joseph says, aren't all dreams God's to interpret? Please tell me what you dreamed. And they tell him stories. And he did interprets the dreams for the two men. All the while there's an investigation going on outside of the prison. Potiphar in all probability in charge. He told the cupbearer, here's the interpretation of your dreams. In three days you're going to be restored to your place and you will continue to be the Pharaoh's you know, cupbearer. But he told the baker three days from now they're going to take your head. They're going to get hanged and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Not such a really good story for one, really bad story for the other. But the bottom line, it was the baker that was trying to poison the king, not the cupbearer. They get restored. Joseph says to the cupbearer, hey, listen, would you do me a favor? When you get out of here, would you put in a good word for me? You see, because there's a family feud in the first chapter, there's a false accusation in the second chapter of this story of Joseph. In the third chapter of this story of Joseph, there's a forgetful friend. He says, sure, man, you get me out of here. I'll tell the Pharaoh. He says, listen, tell the Pharaoh I've been kidnapped. I'm in prison for nothing wrong that I did. Put in a good word for me. But the scripture then ends in Genesis chapter 40 by saying simply, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. And a full two years pass. And our friend Joseph is still in prison. We had this family feud, this false accusation, this forgetful friend, and then there's this this frightful dream that the Pharaoh has. And here's where our story begins to take a little bit more focus. These are going to be related to the five points that I'm going to challenge you on. He has a dream. There's a big, fat, sleek cow that comes out of the Nile. And it's followed by this gaunt, ugly, skinny-looking cow. And the skinny cow eats the fat cow, but the skinny cow stays skinny. And Pharaoh wakes up and goes, man, i got to quit eating pizza so late at night. Then he fell back asleep and then there was this plump grain of corn and, and then it came out of the Nile and this scorched, scrawny, gnarly piece of corn eats the plump corn and, and it's still gnarly. And, and he wakes up and the scripture says the next morning his spirit was troubled. He had a frightening nightmare. He couldn't make sense of it. He calls all of his people in his court, his magicians, his sorcerers. He tells them the dream. They looked at him and said, we don't have a clue. We do not know what you're talking about. We have no idea about the interpretation of the dream about the time that the cupbearer was coming in to giving his morning orange juice. And the cupbearer says, oh, you know what? I remember there was this kid in prison. We had dreams. He interpreted them. And just as he interpreted it, it came to pass. His name is Joseph. The Pharaoh says, go get him and bring him into my presence. Boy, you talk about a reversal of fortunes. You know, a probability some seven 
uh, 13 years either in Potiphar's house or the prison, probably more time in the prison than in Potiphar's house. He's waking up in a prison with a long beard and dirty clothes because that's what you look like when you're in prison. Because the scripture says Pharaoh sent for him. They had to shave him and clean him up and bring him to the Pharaoh who said to him, it's told to me that you can interpret dreams. Boy, here's a key point in the life of Joseph. If I'd have been Joseph right then, I said, you bet your bottom dollar I can. But he said, it's not in me. It's not in me, Pharaoh, but the God that I serve. The God that I serve will tell you the interpretation of dreams. He relays the dreams to him. And let's then pick up into the storyline in chapter 41, verse 29. Again, this passage is what I'll make my five charges on and tell you two things about God. Behold, This is Joseph explaining to the Pharaoh the meaning of Pharaoh's dream. Verse 28 says, listen, Pharaoh, God has shown you what he's about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance will come up in the land of Egypt, and after them will come seven years of famine. And all of the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land so that the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, because it will be so severe Now, as for repeating the dream to the Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter has been determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. And so now let Pharaoh look for a man, discerning and wise, set him over the land of Egypt. Now, let Pharaoh, I'm going to say a few words, I want you to repeat them, take action. If you're reading ESV, which I believe is the preferred translation of your pastor, it says proceed. But the Hebrew word in the Hebrew is actually take action. Do something. You see, he asked him for the interpretation of the dream, which he gives him, but he then proceeds to offer the Pharaoh counsel or instruction on how to address a coming crisis. He says, take action in verse 34. Appoint an overseer in charge of the land. Let him exact a fifth of produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather. Say gather. Then let him gather all of the food for these good years that are coming and store them up. Say store up. Store up the grain for the food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Say guard it. And let the food become as a reserve. Say reserve. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. And the proposals seem good to the Pharaoh and to all of his servants. You see, here's a family feud that has a chapter one, a false accusation in chapter two, a forgetful friend in chapter three, full two years. And then it was God that gave Pharaoh this frightening, this frightening nightmare, but it's a frightful famine. Listen, the, the land had never experienced anything like this dream was suggesting. And Joseph's counsel to the king is make provision today for a challenge that we will certainly encounter in the future. Now let's walk them through those two slides. Let me tell you two things about God that have always been true, always will be true. This is true toward you. 
This is true toward me. It has to do with the two facts that God is both sovereign and providential. These are theological concepts, but let me give you a short, I think, accurate definition of both. When I say that God is sovereign, I, I'm saying that his will is the final cause of all things, that he is free and able to do all that he desires, that no plan of his can be thwarted, no weapon formed against him with prosper. God is omnipotent. His sovereignty and his all power assumes, assures the fact that he will always rule. He has always ruled. He always will rule. And at some point he will rule and every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord. Amen. God is a sovereign God. His will is the final cause of all things. When I talk about God's providence, if I give him that next slide, it talks about that God sustains that which he creates, that it refers to the aspect of his character where he oversees, sustains, and directs his creation in a way that fulfills his purpose. That there's no way for God to ever be surprised or to find himself in a circumstance where he says, geez, I didn't see that coming. God knows all. He's in all. He's in our tomorrow. He was in our yesterday. And he certainly is in our today. Amen? He can cause all things to work together. It doesn't say that he causes all things, but he can take all things, even evil things like Joseph's life, and weave them together in such a way that it accomplishes his will in his time according to his purposes. Why? Because God is sovereign and God is a God of providence. If you're here today, perhaps just checking this church out, maybe you first time you're ever here, maybe you're online listening to this sermon. Can I tell you something? It's not an accident that you're here today. In God's providence, in his overarching sovereignty, he determined for you to be here today. And so I'm going to suggest Five things very quickly that I believe that the church must hear, must heed, and must do. The first is related to the fact that we ought to every day celebrate the sovereignty and the providence of Almighty God. I've got things in my life right now that I'm working on that I'm not exactly sure how I'll overcome. But do you know what? I think God's got it figured out. I'm sure there's moments in Joseph's life where he's going, what in the heck is going on? But do you know what he kept trusting in God? So despite appearances to the contrary, God maintains absolute sovereign control over all things at all times. This is true of your life today. Would you look at me and say, I may not feel like it, but I would at least in faith say God is in control. Would you say that? Amen. No, point number two, this is what a sovereign God is doing. He has a plan for the world. Because he has a plan for the world, he had a plan for this nation, Israel. He had a plan for this nation, Israel. So he has a plan for this man, Joseph, in order that Joseph might become a character that we would say, if it hadn't been for Joseph, the entire world might have starved to death. When the famine came, it got so bad that they said, listen, just go to Joseph and whatever he says, do, do. And it says that the whole world was coming to Egypt because there was bread, there was grain, there was sustenance. And so this is what a sovereign God is always doing. He's directing, he's controlling the destinies of nations for his purpose. And his purposes will always include 
the protection and the provision for his people. God's never going to run out of a provision for you as his child. Whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises that by them we might become partakers of a heavenly nature, having escaped the corruption that's in this world through lust. There is an abundance, a bounty of God that's made available to his children, to his church, every day of this plan that he is controlling toward his ultimate destiny. You ought to write that down. When your life is feeling out of control, you ought to just rejoice in the sovereignty and the providence of God and that in his plan, his plan for you, friend, is good for a future and hope. He might discipline you if you are intentionally needing discipline, just like a loving father disciplines his child. But God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And at all times, he's working for the provision and the protection of his children. Point three, like Joseph, God is with us. And he wants to use us in his sovereign and divine plan to preserve life. Here's his brothers that betray him. Reuben intercedes for him, which is a good thing because in interceding for Joseph, he not only saved Joseph, although he didn't actually save Joseph, they sold him. He saved himself. Jesus hung between two thieves on a cross. One was belittling and the other finally figured out that Jesus was who he said he was. He rebukes his other. He cries out to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in, in paradise. You see, God wants to use us to preserve life. God, God, through Jesus, is coming to offer, to seek and save lost people and to replace a death sentence with life. Point four, like Joseph, we must steward well the abundance of our current condition in order to establish reserves and provisions for future needs. My time's getting away from me, and I apologize, but let me just tell you very quickly that we are in the midst of the largest transfer of wealth in the history of the modern world. In the next 20 years, some 68 to 80 trillion dollars will be conveyed from what's left of my generation. I'm a boomer, I'm a tail end boomer, the builder generation above me and what's left of the silent GI generation. The abundance of every church I've ever served in any capacity has come from those three generations. Which is why it's critically important today for us to talk about what it is to create a legacy of salvation through your stewardship of the assets that God has entrusted to your care. I believe the church is approaching the end of a period of abundance and about to face one of the most challenging financial seasons she has ever faced in recorded history. I'll tell you a little bit more about that if you join us for lunch. But we must steward well the abundance of our current abundant condition and established reserves and provisions for the future. Number five, like Joseph, faithful servants will fulfill their role in God's sovereign plan by utilizing the blessings that he gives for the forward progress of his kingdom and for his kingdom work. You see, this is going to have some application to the church, but let me conclude 
my comments by appealing to you if perhaps if there has never been a time in your life where you've, rest, where, where, where you've recognized your absolute need to be rescued by a good and loving God. Jesus Christ, in the fullness of times, the Scripture said, was sent forth of His Father, born under a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those that had been held captive under the law. That, what that means is there's rules in this book that none of us can keep. That means that there's rules in this book that if it is a proper reflection back to us, we would all agree to, with what Paul wrote in the book of Romans, that we're all sinners. That the wages of sin is death. And that all of sin, not just some of you, Every one of you knuckleheads has sinned. Amen? Amen. <laughs> That's the first amen I've got. Y'all are getting better. <laughs> that God sent forth Jesus, that being in the form of God, he thought equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but he takes this mission to come to be reviled, betrayed, sold, imprisoned, killed, so that then God could raise him from the dead seat him at his right hand and throne in glory. You see, that's where Joseph ended up, sitting at the right hand of the Pharaoh, the king of the land. We're not talking about now about an earthbound story. We're talking about an earthbound story that has a spiritual application. Jesus, Jesus has made every provision for you to have life instead of death. I close with a verse from Amos, which I believe is going to be a description of the future for many of our churches is in Amos chapter 8, verses 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. It will not be a famine of bread and water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea. From north even to east, they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord but they will not find it. We've been in the South where there's a church on every street corner, friend. We're, church, we're closing them every week. At some point, the great tribulation is going to come. God's going to take his church out of the way and there won't be any more church. People that think, oh, I need to go back. Uh, I need, things are getting kind of bad. Maybe I need to go to church and hear the word of God. There won't be unless we leave reserves to preserve life in the future. Don't wait for that. It could be today for you. Today could be the first time when you see the goodness of God, the provision of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. That's how the story ends. He forgives his brothers. You would think that there would be vengeance. You, you monkey with me that bad when you see there's a family reunion. That's the last chapter of the story. We don't have time for that. We'd be here all day and I'd, I'd, I'd get in trouble for preaching that long. But when his brothers do finally reunite with him, they are petrified that he is going to judge them and kill them. You know what he does? He simply says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He sent me here ahead of you to preserve life. He, he, he sent me to preserve a remnant in this earth. As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. You see, I believe this is one of the easiest salvation sermons and appeals that your pastor is fixing to make to you. Don't leave here today. Don't leave here today with any question of your eternal destiny. God's made this abundant provision for you. Every head bowed, every eye closed as our pastor comes and makes the close of our service. Would you listen closely to his words? Would you allow the Spirit of God to move in power 
amongst his people at the preaching of his word. And may you respond. May you take action. May you take action today on what you have heard. In Jesus' name I, I ask it. You know, the Bible calls us just to pray in our own words, in our own way. And so maybe you've never really prayed or you say, I'm ready to place my faith in Christ, but I don't know what to say. Then I'm just going to pray a simple prayer that you can follow along with me right where you are. And it's God that knows your heart. And so you can simply just bow in prayer and say, dear God, today I'm ready to place my faith and trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Amen. You know, if you've prayed that prayer today, first and foremost, we are proud of you. We're excited that you're taking that step of faith. And we'd love to connect with you, to follow up with you, and, and just cheer you on in your journey now with Christ. And so you can connect with us by going to heightschurch.org connect. Click the decision tab. That's going to bring up a form for you to fill out. That's going to come right to me. And we're going to be in touch with you to see how we can come alongside of you and encourage you. If you're in our area, we'd love to connect with you in person on a Sunday morning. Our life groups are at 9 a.m. and our worship service starts at 10.30 a.m. So we hope to see you soon and we hope you have a great week. God bless.